morning, everyone. Welcome to Fullness. If you're new to Fullness, welcome. If you're old to Fullness, welcome back. Glad you're still moving forward. Uh, glad you're here today. Uh, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16. And actually, I'm going to be jumping a lot around, so you can turn there, but I'm going to be moving into a lot of different passages uh, as we look at this together. When I was in uh, college, I, I left Miami, Florida, where my dad was a pastor, uh, where I'd, my home was, and I, I went from Miami, Florida to um, Shawnee, Oklahoma. Um, now I don't know if you've been to Miami or Shawnee, uh, but the worlds, the, it's two different worlds. It's like heaven and hell. And um, really, it took me a while to get, and I love the beauty of Oklahoma. Um, it's still at times, you know, when they talk about the wind comes, we've been down the plains. I mean, you could see for 100 miles and it was windy and nothing was green and it was Oklahoma. Anyway, I left home, went to college, and then while I was in college, I, it was so far away and, you know, it was harder to travel. The speed limit back then was like 55. Do you remember uh, those days when so you're like, what? Yeah, on interstates, the speed limit was 55 because they were going to save us gas and get us. Anyway, it took forever. It was 24, 25-hour drive straight through uh, to get, get back home. And, but whenever I went home at Christmas or uh, summers, and that's really the only time I got to go home, I would always talk about going home. I'm going home this week. This week. I'm going home for Christmas. I'm going home for the summer. Between my... Um, when I graduated from college and when I started graduate school at seminary, my parents moved. My dad was a pastor of a church in Miami, Florida, and he, took, uh, he became pastor of a church in Coral Springs, Florida, uh, which is where we met the, the Kuhn and the Chinloy family, and um, a lot of things happened in our life. But one thing radically changed for me. I never used the phrase again, I'm going home. When my dad changed, I, from there on out, I, I just noticed that I always used the phrase, I'm going to my parents' house, or I'm going to Coral Springs. But I never used the phrase again that I could remember, I'm, I'm going home. Now, I lived in college, actually became more like home to me than home did, and so did seminary, even though I was moving dorm rooms, and my group of friends was there, and we have a lot of thoughts about the whole idea of home. Kathy and I were talking the other day. We, um, we're, we're coming up on living in the same house for 30 years. On January 1st of 2021, we'll have lived in the same house for 30 years. Every one of my children, except for Jared, was brought to this house after they were born. It's the only place they know, any of them, as home. Some of them have told me if we move, they're not coming back. You know, I said, so I said, I'm moving. Uh, if that's the case, I'm, a, I'm on my way out if that's true. You know, what we think of home is unique. You know, we sing this song, or you've heard the spiritual, um, this world is not my, I'm just what? Passing through. I'm just passing through. There's this idea there's a home that we've not seen, a home that we're guaranteed, but we've not really, we don't really know this home. It's kind of a different 
idea about home because home is usually something you're really familiar with, right? And you're going back to. But God says there's a home. I'm preparing a home for you, a place for you, a place in eternity. And so we're just kind of passing through. But, but what I want to say to you today is that there's, there's a context where we have a home away from home. Like a home that's coming, but there's a home that we have now, and I believe that home is called the church. It is this. It is the people of God that we'll be gathered with throughout all of eternity that we get to experience now. It's not permanent, but it is. And so we have this home away from home. We have all of these concepts and ideas about what is church. We have 2,000 years of history of church. We have the Bible's teaching on church. We have incredible misconceptions about church. So this morning, I want to go back a little bit to the basics as we look at this series on sacrificial living and talk about the sacrificial church. Because I'm going to give you my premise right up front. And if you don't mind me being a little bold about it, church is not what you get, it's what you give. So please, I'm begging you to say, hey, God, what can I what can I give to the body of Christ? And please, again, I'm begging you, don't let the words come out of your mouth that's saying, what am I getting? I'm just not getting anything. I'm not getting. I'm not getting. Please move from the consumer mindset to the I am a part of the body of Christ mindset. And God will direct your steps. I'm not saying you're committed to fullness for the rest of your life. Some of you are, which is great. Hey, we're in this together. But some of you, you're, you're going to move. You're going to relocate. God will direct you. But you're, you never leave a place, a church, because you say, I'm not getting. I'm not getting. There's a story told about a, a boy who went to camp. And at camp, he was at archery, and the boy next to him said, wow, you're really good at this archery thing. You're hitting the bullseye every time. And the little boy said, well, I do archery a little different. And the other little boy said, well, how's that? He said, well, I just shoot the arrow. Wherever it hits, I go and draw a bullseye around it, and I'm winning. For some of us, that's what church is. We have just shot an arrow We think it's hit a place. We say, hey, I'm winning. But are we? What is the church? Is the church a family? Is it a body? And if it's a body, what does that even mean? Is it a corporation? Is a church a place? Over 2,000 years, we've inherited a lot of ideas about the church. So today, I just want to talk about it just for a minute. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, what? My church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. 
Oh, Jesus, I pray that you will build a church in Birmingham that the gates of hell cannot stand against. The church, for whatever reason, within our society and in the context of the American dream, has lost its vision, has lost its place. There's a story uh, told, I forget the author's name where I first read this, but he talks about this wounded soldier who goes to a hospital to get treatment. And he walks into the hospital and there are two doors. One says uh, minor injuries, one says severely wounded. Well, he felt like I'm not really that hurt, I'll go through minor injuries. So he goes through the door, minor injuries. Then on that other side of the door, it says enlisted men, or officers. And he said, well, I'm an enlisted man. I'll go through the enlisted. He goes to the enlisted door. Standing in front of him is another door. And in front of this door, it says party members, non-party members. I was going to say Republican, Democrat, but I didn't want to get in trouble this morning. But party members, non-party members. You can take your own idea of what that might mean. He says, well, I'm not a party member, so I'll go through that door. And the next thing he knows, he finds himself back on the street. He goes back to his battalion and one of his friends says to him hey how was your visit to the hospital and he said you know those people didn't do me any good but boy are they organized (laughs) at times I feel that's what the church has become we're not really doing people much good but man are we organized In letters from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King said this. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. He said this 50 years ago. He was speaking in the context, of course, of civil rights, but he was talking about the church's ability to speak truth into the world. And that the church had become a place of taking, not giving. That the sacrificial spirit was lost where the church was no longer saying, I'm willing to lay down my life, but rather saying, I want to protect what I have. What is the church supposed to be? From a biblical standpoint, I'll try to not let my biases and prejudice, let's just look a little bit at the word of God. I want to point out three key components that I think are who we're supposed to be as the church. First, the church is the house of worship. It's a house of worship. It's what we're doing here today. Why did you come here? You came to be a part of worship, declaring that God is worthy. There's much within the New Testament, and if you have the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and now the New Testament church that speaks of our purpose of being a people that gather to worship God. By the way, the battle for who you worship and how you worship is as old as the ages. From the garden 
to the temptation experience, the devil has been trying to rob worship from the one true God. Did God really say? And in the temptation experience, he takes Jesus up on a high mountain. says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's so much about the temptation experience I find fascinating. You know, the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and says, hey, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And Jesus doesn't say to him, hey, this is not yours to give. Did he? He went back to what is at the core, the first commandment. Love the Lord your God. Worship him and worship him alone. The heart of what it means to be a follower of God is it has to do with our worship. All other arguments pale in comparison to whether or not we are worshiping the one true God. And by the way, I, I just want to kind of throw out to you today that everyone here is worshiping something. Everyone here is giving your heart to something. Everyone here is giving your trust to something. And a lot of those somethings are actually pretty good things. You know, like family. I like family. I love my family, even though I make fun of them all the time and kid around about my family. I love my family. I would lay down my life for my family, bottom line. But if I elevate my family to a place that I worship my family... Rather than worshiping God, I'm out of whack. Things are going to be out of line. Things are not going to fall into place. As good as family is, family is not to be worshipped. Worship God and worship Him alone. A lot of the dysfunction we have, even within the context of healthy, what we would call healthy American church life, is because we've become family-centric. Just throw it out there to you. I'll write a book on it someday. The family-centric church rather than God-centered church. A lot of people go to church because they want their kids to be raised right. They want to meet friends. We homeschool, we church, we do this because I want my kids. It's all about the kids. I'd like to say to you, no, it's not. I like kids. Don't say go away saying, oh, he's a kid hater. Ah, pastor, he's telling me I should just throw him in the backyard, let him eat dirt, and it'll be fine. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, God is the center of your life. God is, if you want your family and your kids to be what God has created them to be, then worship the Lord your God and serve him and serve him alone. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. Here he's talking to Satan, now he's... No comparison, talking to a woman who is asking him some questions and he speaks to her when she asks him a very difficult question about where worship should occur. And he comes back and says to her basically, hey, worship is not a about a place, it's about the heart of the person who's worshiping. And he says to her, believe me woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. By the way, I don't want to get caught up on this, but as far as eschatology is concerned, I think this is kind of important. Jerusalem is not the center of everything. 
But instead, he says, yet, that was a freebie, kind of flying by the side there. <laughs> he goes on and says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Listen to this line. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, the whole idea of uh, before the eyes of God, Coram Deo, the idea that, that's a Latin phrase meaning in, before God, before the eyes of God, um, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those who what? Whose hearts are completely his, according to Chronicles. Jesus rephrases this and says the Father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. I, I love the topic of worship. I could do a whole seminar on worship, so I'm going to keep moving forward here. But, but God is, I want God's eyes to rest on us. As he looks throughout the whole earth and he says, where are the people whose hearts are completely mine? Where are the people who are worshiping in spirit and truth? Wait, there's a group. So that his eyes fall on us. Paul in Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to do what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Individually, we lay our lives down because it's the natural response to the mercy of God. Paul, by the way, Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about this. So when you jump to chapter 12, I, I would encourage you to go back and read 11 chapters of beautiful, complicated theology. Where Paul is basically saying this is all about God and what he's done for you. Even the nation of Israel, 9, 10, 11, it's all about God. In view of God's incredible mercy, which I've just unpacked for you, here's what's reasonable. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. It's reasonable act of worship. And think about it. If all the living sacrifices of God individually come together corporately, we become a sacrificial offering before him. And it's reasonable. And I think God is there. When people live like this all the time, not just on Sunday morning, but we live like this all the time, we become this entity known as the church, the body of Christ, the people of God who come together and God's presence rests among us. Why is that important? Because in 1 Corinthians, if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, you will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. He's really there. Now, Paul is talking about prophesying, but I think he's talking about much more than that. I, I see this discussion in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, talking about the body of Christ coming together and worshiping God and offering their gifts, being the body. Every body part being its part and doing what God has called, the presence of God is there. Somebody walks in and says, whoa, God is in that place. They don't just look around and say, what a bunch of weirdos. They seem to be having a fun time. 
I'm glad they're enjoying themselves, but it's not for me. No, no, no. I think they'll say God is there. That's the goal, right? That God is here in our midst because God's presence changes everything. So when you come together, brothers, sisters, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, I understand you get a couple of hundred people together. It is hard for everybody to have something, right? I mean, really. Think about it. 200 people. Everybody's got a tongue and interpretation. It'd be ideal, but we'd have to bring lunch and dinner and... You know, there are certain, but it's small group. Do you go to small group? Like, do you go to an E3 group and say, God, give me, give me something for the group tonight. Give me something for the group today. Instead of saying, man, I got to go to group. Oh, no, I got to take food. Oh, I forgot the food. I'm going to go buy some cookies at Publix because I don't have time to make food. Just show up a group. Have some food, sing a song or two, hear a scripture passage, endure for an hour and a half and go home. I did it. I did what Pastor Bart said. I was part of a group. Instead of saying, God, what can I give to group today? Give me a tongue. Somebody's, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. That tongue thing is freaks me out. Okay, well, you could ask anyway. If he doesn't, if it's, he's not going to give you something that freaks you out, I don't think. How about an interpretation? How about a hymn? How about a scripture? How about a word for someone, a prophetic word? Can you imagine if all our E3 groups operated like that and everybody's in there and engaged and given to the group? I would not have to stand up here and ever say, hey, you should go to group. You'd be dying to go to group. Not only for what you get to give, but what God speaks into your life. Why have we lost who we are. I mean, what is our primary purpose for being here today? Why, why are we here? What are we going to be doing throughout all eternity? What does the ongoing spiritual battle of the ages entail? That should tell you something. Answered all these questions in my eyes is worship. What is the church to be? We're to be a worshiping people. It is a place, a house, a people of worship. But it, it goes beyond that. I'm going to try and move a little quicker here. A church, but this is good, isn't it? Somebody say amen. If you don't say amen, I'm going to go back and do the whole worship thing again because I love it. A, a church is a center of building community. Of community. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, Ecclesia. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Ecclesia is the Greek word here used that we've translated church. Now, I'm not, I, I don't really have time to get into the whole uh, etymology of the word church. But church is a, it's not the right word, in my humble opinion. Let me give you why I'm saying that. But it's, it's what we've got. It's who we are. So ecclesia refers to a people, the called out ones, the congregation. 
Um, and, and it was used for hundreds of years to describe the people of God, ecclesia. As a matter of fact, when Jerome translated the Vulgate, and then what is that, 390? I should have Olivia here. She's got that little song. Whenever he translated the Vulgate, 390, 400 AD, he, he so thought this word was important that he just transliterated it out of the Greek into the Latin. So if you were to look at, for instance, the Apostles' Creed, which we read this morning, in Latin, it says Sanctus Ecclesia Catholic. In other words, holy, called out ones, universal. It doesn't say church, it says Ecclesia. Well, when English started coming into being, and we started translating into English, Wycliffe, the first translator, because of some... Uh, it's controversial why he used the word church, but he used the word church. Kirka from the German, Kirk from Scottish, probably because of the Scottish influence. Wycliffe translated it church. Tyndall, right after Wycliffe, translated whenever Ecclesia, which is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. When he got to Ecclesia, he went back to and used the word congregation, meaning people. There's a lot of debate where the word church comes from. There's a Greek term, kuriakos, which means house of the Lord. There's an English word, circa, meaning circle, because the, all the old, like Stonehenge and all those old places of worship were in a circle. It's a debate. It's debated where the word came from. What's not debated is this. The word church means place, not people. Now think about this. This is philosophical. Even if you go to house of the Lord, you're referring to a place, not a people. Ecclesia means people. And no matter how much we battle this concept, we still battle this idea that church is about a place and not a people. It's kind of in what you say it. I'm going to church. Do you mean you're going to a people? No, no, I'm going to a place church. The problem is that really when we think about church, we're to be a people, not just a place. I don't know if it resonates with you, but it's, it's really important kind of what's down in your heart about what you think of when I talk about a sacrificial church. To talk about a sacrificial people. Open the door and there's all the, the peoples, right? But first you got the steeple. You know, you got all this before you get to the peoples. You got your steeples. Why? Because we think, we used to have a steeple. Praise God, it leaked so bad we had to take it down. You know, the prayer chapel was more like a prayer garden. Uh, it was so wet in there all the time. I've never, I just can't imagine God looking down at the church and seeing some huge building with a steeple and saying, oh, you did that for me? That's what you, that's what is sacrificial, that nice building with the big steeple? No, I, what is God looking for, people? A people whose heart, a people whose hearts are completely his. That's what he looks down and sees. And we're to, be a, we're to be a place of building community. Now listen, 
I, I, I understand. We're, we're in 21st century America. If we want people from Vestavia to show up, you kind of have to have a decent building. It's the reality of our world. But the building is not the center. The building is a place only to hold the community that is the church. So that when people come in and see a worshiping community whose hearts are completely God's, God is in their midst and they'll fall down on their face and say, man, God is really among you. They won't say, oh, I love those chairs. Right? If that's the case, we've missed something. Therefore, as God's chosen building, no, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Whatever covers every what. So to speak, whatever you have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I, I, I can't get caught up in this because it's so rich, but how did the Lord forgive you? Completely. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Wow. I want to be a part of a church like that, don't you? I pray we are. We're working on it by the power of the Spirit. Real quick, here's some things that this community entails. Service. Service. You, my brothers, were called to be, what? Free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, do what? Serve one another in love. You know, over the past couple of weeks, our friend, uh, daughter of this church, Jill Ross, has been in the hospital. And... One of the things, um, without going into a lot of details, Jill doesn't have family. I mean, earthly family. So years ago, Fullness adopted Jill, who has um, you know, a degenerative disease, and she's now in a nursing home. And I was amazed. We had people from our church there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, while she was in the hospital sitting with her being with her, loving her. It was, it was unreal to me. I was like, I was kidding with Kathy. I was saying, you know, that Grant and Amanda, they're just so much better Christians than I am. <laughs> Why? Because they serve in a loving, incredible way. We just serve one another. To prepare God's people, it says in Ephesians 4.12, for what? Works of service. Why is the church, why are apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists all given? To prepare God's people, the church, for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up. So we're to be a serving people. We're also to be a place uh, in building community where there is stuff to learn. Right? There is stuff to learn. Go and make what? Disciples. Disciple. Unless a disciple is a learner, a disciple is a follower. There is a body of education, things that need to be learned, and we're to do that here. 
Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We become mature, I believe, by, by the body of Christ being the body of Christ, worshiping together, serving together, learning what it is we're supposed to know, and then stewarding that. We have this gift that's been given to us, and, and the body, the building community stewards it. It stewards our gifts. It, it stewards our, 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 our lives. It's, it's a place of stewardship of our money. Yes, he's talked about money. It says in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Okay, what would you tell them? On the first day of the week, every one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, give it to the church. Now, I know people talk about, hey, tithing's not in the, not in the New Testament. Uh, you're right, the word is not used, but I think there are some concepts that are still even in this. Set aside a sum of money. Okay, how much? In keeping with his income. Make more, give more. In other words, the church is to be a place of stewardship, service and education and training and stewardship. Why? So that we will, this is all Ephesians 4, so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. By the way, we live in an age where there's tons of deceitful scheming going on. Tons. How are you not going to be blown about? I think when the church, the people of God, when we worship, when we serve, when we give our lives, when we know the truth and walk in the truth, then we're able to stand firm against the deceitful scheming. Instead, we'll be able to speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each... Whoa, 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 look at this part. As each part does its work. That means you and me. Each part. If we want a building, growing community, then every part of the body has to do its work. I, I could really start preaching here, but it might sound bitter or angry, and I, I don't want that. I want to speak the truth in love, which is this. If you just think I'm going to go to fullness and not do what God has gifted you to do, empowered you to do, redeemed you to do, I'd like to joyfully and in love call you to repent. Why? Because we'll never be what God has called us to be the body of Christ, until every body part does its part. Now, I'm not trying to lay guilt on you. Really, I could make a quick step from here to there. I'm trying to, in the power of the Spirit, say, time to wake up. If we're going to stand against the deceitful scheming of the world, then we have to step out and say, wait a minute. God has redeemed me. He's gifted me. Quit listening to the lies of the devil that tell you you have nothing to offer. Quit it. Just quit it. <laughs> That'd be easy, wouldn't it? 
Here's my problem. Well, just stop it. Stop doing that. All right, moving on. The church is an instrument to expand the kingdom. We're a place of worship. We're a growing community, and we're given to expand the kingdom of God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. God says to his immediate disciples, go. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, his first go, by the way, was kind of a wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Go and wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Spirit of God will come upon you. Then go and make disciples. By the power of the Spirit. Then the church is born when the Spirit of God falls on the day of Pentecost. They begin right away expanding the kingdom of God. It says the church gathered. And by, now think about it again. The ecclesia gathered. Not the building gathered. But the people gathered. And they gathered. They learned. They worshipped. They went. Now, they didn't go quite fast enough. You know, he said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, right? They were having such a great time in Jerusalem. Hey, this is where we live. God eventually persecuted, sent persecution so that the church scatters, so the kingdom of God goes out. We're to expand God's kingdom. And Paul in Corinthians, he talks about how God reconciled us to himself through Christ. He reconciled us for what purpose? Yeah, see, this is where we get caught up again. I keep hitting this and hammering this, but it's really important that God didn't reconcile you to feel good about you. He reconciled you and gave us, by the way, we got to get over just the me mentality and talk about the us mentality. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. I mean we are God's plan. This is what he does. He, he says. I've reconciled you. Now go and reconcile the world to me. And you're my ambassador. I'm going to make my appeal through you to see God's kingdom expand all around us. The church is God's idea. The ecclesia, the called out ones, the people of God, we are his, we're his plan for seeing the kingdom of God expand to the world around us. Which leads me to this question, and it's pretty important. Which of these two questions is correct? It's all up to me or leave it to the church? Now, you don't have to answer. Please don't. This is a reflective question. But there, there, there are in these questions responses I get on a pretty consistent basis. Basically saying, look, I just got it. Expanding God's kingdom, it's up to me. I got to go. I got to take it. I got to go get the world for Jesus. So here I go. Or do, do we at times say, you know, it's up to the church. It's the church's job. 
to win the world. It's the church's job to, to I'll just give you an example. Kathy is, um, Kathy is um, the reason I prayed for our children. She's presenting the plan of salvation to your children this morning. Because she is of the heart that there are some within our, our child group, first through sixth graders, who don't know Jesus yet. And so, praise God, we've got a children's pastor who's presenting the plan of salvation under the power of the Spirit to say to these children, come, be reconciled to God. But there have been times where we as a church have said to parents, hey, we want you to, uh, to we, we don't want to rob you of the joy of sharing the plan of salvation with your children and leading them to Christ. Do you understand? Are, are you all understanding what I'm saying here? We have said to some parents, hey, we're going to present that, but if you want, we, it's such a joy to lead your child to Christ. And we've had people say to Kathy and to me, I want the church to do it. Now, here's the problematic part. We are the church. You know, when, when someone says, I want the church to do it, you know what they're saying? You do it. You do it. My kids used to do this all the time. Hey, do you want to you do this? No, you do it. What does that mean? I don't want to do it. You do it. We've lost the idea that we are the church. We are the called out ones. Instead, they think, oh, the pastor, the children's pastor, the youth pastor, the blank pastor, whatever whatever that pastor is, he's, he's the church. We are the church. If we don't get the idea that we are the church, we're going to miss what God has for us. And to be a sacrificial church, to be a kingdom-expanding instrument in his hand, we have to all do our part. Jesus says in Luke 7 that the Pharisees and experts in the law the ones who knew, they rejected what? God's purpose for themselves. Oh, Jesus, help me not get here. Help me not miss your purpose for myself, for our church. And I believe it's, it's a we thing. We, the body of Christ, the people of God. Because it's God who has made us for this very purpose, and given us the Spirit, guaranteeing what is to come. We, the church, are to be a people of sacrificial living because we're a sacrificial, a sacrificial church. May God direct our steps. May fullness be everything that God has called us to be. May we be a people who first worship God with everything that we are and love Him with our whole heart. May we be a place where the community gathers to learn, to experience, to grow. And may we be an instrument in his hand to see the kingdom of God expand to the world, to the world around us. Lord, we thank you that we are the ecclesia, sanctus, holy, ecclesia, people of God, Catholic, universal. Church, we believe this. And I pray, God, that your direction and power and might will be upon us. I pray that your presence would rest with, in us so that we can see the kingdom of God expand. Lord, I pray for all of us for our thinking to be rewired 
so that we don't meet, miss your purpose in this generation. We desire for your people to be not an irrelevant extra, so to speak, to the community and to the nation, but may we plead with the heart of this people in this age to see your kingdom expand. So God, your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it's being done in heaven. Let it be done through us. We give ourselves to you the fresh and the new this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I, I know that offering is can be a weird thing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, he's asking for money. But I, I, I'm asking you this morning to say, when you give in the offering, this is not about me. This is about us. I want to be a part of a community of faith, a community, a people of God. And so, Lord, this small little thing, it represents all of me. Take me and use me for your kingdom's sake. Show me what part of the body of Christ I'm to be. Empower me to, to be that. And may I step out in faith to accomplish all that you want me to be to build up this local body and the body of Christ universal to the world around me. Now, I know I just said a lot of stuff, but in your heart, just agree, if you would, as you give this offering, God, take me and use me for your kingdom's sake. Don't let me be a person who says, what can I get? But instead, let me be a person that says, what can I give? And may I give my life, may I give my life away. Before we take up the offering, Scott's got a couple of opportunities for service. And then we'll worship God through the giving of an offering. Awesome. Well, speaking of people, we want to welcome some new people into our church family, people that are, are new to fullness, and they've decided they want to be a part of this place. And so uh, I have a few that I want to introduce today, and I, I know that we're, there's going to be a few more in the coming weeks. But um, so first, uh, Daniel Shaw, if you stand or just raise your hand. Daniel. <clears throat> Craig Howell. <clears throat> 